I know. Trevor, while you're picking up your guitar, I'm going to correct you. I am Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. But Trevor said he's, he's not one of the pastors here. But you have ministered to us this morning, have you not? Has he not ministered to us? Yeah. And this is something we believe. You know, Trevor ministered to us through playing bass and through praying for us. Danielle ministered to us through leading worship and Cohen on the piano, Reese through announcements, others who greeted us as we came in through the door. Rachel, who's doing sound right now, ministers to us because we believe in the priesthood of all believers. And though some of us may not have the privilege that I have to be able to take the time set apart to be able to do pastoral ministries, we believe that as uh, faithful followers of Jesus, we're all called to minister and uh, to one another and be ministered by one another. And what a privilege that is to be a part of the family of God and to be able to be used by him in that way. So I thank you, Trevor, and I thank all of you who are part of our uh, church family who minister in all the ways that God uh, has enabled and gifted us to do that. Well, there goes one sermon. Let's go into the one that I planned for today. Before we do that, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your great love for us, and I just pray, Lord, uh, that you would open our ears to what the Spirit has to say to us this morning, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, Lord, be pleasing to you, we pray. Amen. Well, not too long ago, one of my bicycles needed a repair. Something was going on when I was trying to shift the bike. It was making a little clicking sound at the bottom back derailleur. That's, that's at the back of the bike, at the bottom near the rear tire. And so I thought I'd bring it to my, my mechanic, and they would just make a little adjustment for me, and I would just get on my merry way. However, when I brought it to the shop, they said, actually, uh, the problem wasn't at the rear derailleur. The problem was at the entire other end of the bike, up at the handlebars, at the shifter. And I wasn't going to get the little fix that I had hoped for. They were going to need to have the bike for days. It was going to cost me a whole lot more money than I anticipated. They had a remedy for my problem, but it wasn't the fix that I had hoped for. It's because it wasn't the, I, the problem I had wasn't the problem that I thought I had. And we can find the same thing happens to us in other areas of life too. Have you ever... Uh, had a little bit of a medical issue, and you think, well, I'll just go to the doctor, and I'll get myself a simple little prescription. You think that the problem that you have is pretty straightforward, and so the solution should be pretty simple and straightforward as well. And then unexpectedly, your physician tells you that the issue isn't where you thought it was, and instead, they pinpoint a problem in a completely different part of your body. What you're experiencing, where it's presenting, is just one of the symptoms. And now all of a sudden, this surprising diagnosis leads to unforeseen medical procedures and recover, recovery periods you never saw coming. They had a remedy, but it wasn't the remedy you were looking for. That's because the problem you have isn't the problem you thought you had. And just like with our bicycles or our bodies, we can turn to God in order to address problems in our lives, hoping for a simple and easy solution. And instead, we discover that the root of our troubles is something we never anticipated, and the remedy that we receive is not what we have in mind either. And in some cases, 
God's solution comes at a higher cost or demands more from us than we would prefer. But despite all of that, the passage we're looking at this morning still encourages us to go to God with our troubles because he will help us. God's got a remedy, so pray. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James, and we're going to be looking at chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. This is the word of the Lord. So the passage that we just read comes from the letter James wrote, who is the half-brother of Jesus, who led the church uh, in Jerusalem, the Christian church in Jerusalem at this time. And that church then was like ours in many ways. The Christians in Jerusalem were often felt like they were misunderstood by their society. They also had conflicts with one another within the church. And while they experienced great joy following Jesus and being a part of God's family, they also continued to struggle with difficulties like sin and sickness. In many ways, they are just like us today. But in response to any and all of these things, James has one consistent encouragement. Pray. Now, we have been in a sermon series for the last number of weeks entitled Who We Are Becoming, which has focused on our church's vision statement and our five core values. And today we're looking at the core value of prayer. And our value statement on prayer says that we are committed to cultivating the practice of individual and corporate prayer as the foundation for Christian spiritual formation and the advancement of God's kingdom. And so this is why we're talking about prayer. For many of us, prayer is something that we're very familiar with. Perhaps we grew up in church praying, or in our homes we were taught to pray before meals, or maybe at bedtime. My parents and grandparents, they taught me to recite prayers in German that I can still recite some of these today, but I have no idea what I'm saying. And for some people, prayers like that. It's a foreign experience. They just don't understand it. You see, for a person who doesn't have a relationship with God or does not believe that there's a world beyond what we can touch and see, prayer seems like a superstition. It's like making a wish upon a star. But for followers of Jesus, we believe that prayer is a vital part of our relationship with the Creator. It's how we converse with Him, both speaking and listening. Prayer is, a fundamental, is as fundamental to our relationship with God as communication is to any other relationship that we value. It is essential. When Jesus speaks to His followers about prayer, He equates it to a child speaking to their father. In Matthew 6, 6, he says, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. 
New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, prayer isn't just calling out to God in the darkness, to a distant unknown God, sorry. But as James writes, in prayer, God draws near to those who come near to him. So he's not distant, but he's near. And so the first reason that you and I are to pray is to develop our relationship with God, our Heavenly Father. It's not just enough for us to know about God, but prayer enables us to foster intimacy with him. For example, when it comes to my two sons, I can know about them without knowing them. I can hear reports about their days from the emails that their teachers send me. I can ask my wife Andrea to give me a report about what the children have been up to, and I can even observe their activities with my own eyes, and all of these things do happen, but none of these remove the importance of us talking with one another, right? In order for us to have a good and close relationship, it needs to move beyond knowing about to engaging with each other. And in the same way, God, our Heavenly Father, He wants to hear from us, His children. He wants to hear how we're feeling and to listen to our opinions, even though He already knows it all before we tell Him, as we heard in our prayer this morning. Yeah. But by telling God, this action itself is vital to our relationship with Him. And just like I want my boys to ask, just like I want, you know, to hear about their day, I want them to ask me about my day and to hear about my hopes and desires. And so God also wants to communicate to us through prayer his hopes and his desires for us and his world. And so intimacy is developed when we communicate together. And that's what prayer is. James tells us in these verses that we should be praying no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, the good, the bad, or the ugly, suffering, joy, or sickness, because in all of these things, God has a remedy, so pray. First, he tells us that we should pray during suffering. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Why should we pray, though, to God when we're facing trouble? Now, this might be self-evident to many of us, but not for others. See, Jesus emphasized that God loves us because he is our heavenly father and we are his children. And like a good earthly father, God does not enjoy seeing his children suffer. God longs to relieve us of our difficulties, to help us through them, and ultimately, he desires to deliver us from our troubles. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you, then though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And so we pray to God, in our suffering because God gives good gifts. And he's got a remedy for our troubles. He can deliver us from our troubles. However, deliverance is not always the remedy God gives us for our suffering. 
It's the one we want, but it's not always the one that we get. And this is exceedingly hard because we live in a culture that places a great premium on eliminating discomfort and suffering. We act quickly to remove it from our lives, to spare our children from experiencing it. Yet there are benefits and things that we can learn that only come through difficulty and suffering. Paul says in Romans, suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. James says in chapter 1, Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. Now, as a parent, I know that this is true too with my children. If I do not allow them to experience some suffering or face difficulties, it would not be good for them. I wouldn't be doing them any favors by rescuing them from all the adversity they'd face. In fact, I'd actually be negligent if I did that. You see, by not allowing them to ever suffer or struggle, I'd be setting them up for failure rather than equipping them for life. In a podcast I was listening to this week, uh, the CEO of the Barna Group, which is the leading research company and communications company, David Kinnaman, He shared about a recent study they completed on millennials and Gen Z, which focused on the resiliency of their discipleship. And he encouragingly reported that this generation has great openness to spirituality and the Bible. However, he says, and I quote, we have prepared this generation for success, but we have not prepared them for suffering. And suffering is an essential component of following Jesus. Suffering produces perseverance and character and hope. James says it leads to maturity and the completion of our faith. And so when Paul says to us in Philippians 1 that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion, then we should understand that the completion of this good work in us will require for us to go through trials and suffering. And I know that that's hard. It is hard for me to watch my children struggle with things and not to intervene, but I love them. And for that reason, there are times that I allow them to struggle. And if I, though I am evil, know how to give good gifts to my children, in order that they become resilient, then how much better does our Heavenly Father understand the importance of allowing us, His children, whom He loves, to face adversity? That it's good for those who He loves. And I understand how difficult this is to hear, especially for many of us this morning who are facing some really difficult things in life. Knowing that God permits us to face difficulty when he could just simply take it away. But this does not mean that God has abandoned us or that he doesn't do anything to help us through our suffering. James tells us to pray if we're suffering because though God may not always deliver us from our difficulties, he does provide us with remedies. They may not take the trouble away, but they help a great deal. Remedies like peace, 
hope, courage, remedies like scriptures that bring us comfort, or the family of God who gathers around to encourage and support us. Again, these may not be the remedy we want or have prayed for, but in my experience, they do make a world of difference when we are facing trouble. God has a remedy, and so pray. Next, James says, is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Now, we assume that when times are good, that's when it's going to be easiest to pray, but that's not necessarily so, and not often in my experience the case. Often when we experience suffering, when our backs, up are, our backs are up against the wall, that's when it feels like it's instinctual to pray. Maybe it's the desperation we feel. But when things are going well, it's all too easy to forget where that, this joy ultimately comes from. In James 1, he writes, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. And so here, James says, just like Jesus did before, that God is our Father who gives good gifts to his children, and we should praise him when he does. And when we praise God during the good times, when we're happy and full of joy, that's when God provides us a remedy. And you might be like, a remedy when times are good? Why do we need a remedy then? Let's call it preventative medicine. See, God doesn't want us to just praise him when things are going well because it makes him feel good. Rather, prayer and praise in the good times reminds you and I that every good thing ultimately belongs to God and comes from him, and praising him for the good things cultivates within us attitudes of gratitude. So when we praise God during the good times, it cultivates in us an attitude of gratitude. In Colossians 3, it says, let the message of Christ dwell richly among you as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And you see, an attitude of gratitude is great preventative medicine for believers by cultivating thankfulness in the good times. You and I are better equipped to face adversity tomorrow. My grandmother, or my Oma, she was a great example of this. Uh, when she was young, her family was made destitute. They lost everything when the communists came in and took it all. And then she had many of her family members murdered by bandits during the Second World War. Her husband was uh, taken captive, and so she bounced around from one refugee camp to another with her two little boys in tow. One of them was my father. When she finally arrived in Canada, this was like the promised land, and she was so grateful to God for his mercy and kindness to them, but the good times didn't last long. You know, she suffered significant ailments, and she had to live in an extended care unit for most of the time that I knew her. And yet, I'll never forget how 
every time I visited her, she was also so grateful to God for all that he had done. Never once did she utter a bitter word about her circumstances to me. And though I'm sure that she struggled often to make sense of the suffering and trouble that she experienced throughout her life, she continued to place her hope and trust in God's goodness and was thankful even during those difficult years. And I think it came down to being grateful when times were good, cultivating that attitude of gratitude so that she could remain grateful when times were difficult. It helps us to face future difficulty, and we cultivate this kind of attitude through praise and thanksgiving. Finally, James moves on to this third group. He says, Are any among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now this sex section here, it packs a punch. There is a lot going on here, so I think we need to break it down, beginning with what I think is the most surprising part of this passage. Starting in verse 15, James writes, If the sick have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. If the sick have sinned, they will be forgiven. Confess your sins and you'll be healed. Why does the topic of sin even come up? I thought James was talking about sick people. One of the reasons is, is that at this time, there was a widespread belief that sickness was caused by sin. Today, though, we attribute our sickness to things like viruses and germs, faulty genetics, or even environmental factors. But what if it wasn't just one or the other? What if it was both? Jesus and the New Testament writers seem to think so. Jesus doesn't always think that sickness is caused by sin. There's a story in John 9 where he and his disciples are walking along and they come upon a blind man from birth and his disciples ask Jesus, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither this man or his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus heals the man, and God's mighty works are displayed in him. So he says, Jesus says definitively, that this man's blindness was not a result of his or his parents' sin. However, in 1 Corinthians 11, a passage that probably most of us are familiar with because we read it once a month when we are about to take the Lord's Supper, Paul writes, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. And so the Bible does sometimes see sin as a cause for sickness. To understand this, we need to keep in mind a biblical worldview of how things work. You see, the Bible 
its view of reality doesn't see the spiritual world and the physical world as separate entities. Rather, it sees these as two realms which make up our existence as two planes or two spheres that either overlap or intersect. For some of you who maybe enjoy uh, the Netflix series Stranger Things, think of it as the upside down, right? Where one world impacts the other. That's why when we sin with our bodies, the Bible says our faith and our relationship with God is affected. It's also why when Jesus came, he didn't just save people from their sins, but he also healed the blind, enabled the lame to walk. The kingdom of God that Jesus proclaimed isn't just a means to save our souls, our spirits, but rather the whole person and all of creation as well the spiritual, and the physical. The physical and spiritual realms affect one another, and this is why James says that if the sick have sinned and they seek God, they will be forgiven, and that if you and I confess our sins to one another and pray, we may be healed. So sin and sickness, it can be connected. We see this in a story in Luke 5 where there's these friends, and they have a paralytic friend. He cannot walk, and so they want to bring him to Jesus because their desire is that Jesus would heal their friend so he can walk. But they have to dig through the roof and lower the man down through a hole in the roof because there's such a large crowd in the house. They can't get their friend into the entrance. And when they lower him down on the mat and Jesus sees the faith of his friends, he does the unexpected. He doesn't immediately heal the man. He says, your sins are forgiven. But then he goes on and he tells the man to pick up his mat and walk. We see that Jesus takes care of both the sin and the sickness. And that these two things, in this case, they are connected. But though sin and illness can be connected, we must note what James does not assume. He does not assume that the sick have sinned. He says, if they have sinned. And while you and I should not be quick to dismiss the physical effects of our own disobedience, we should always, always refrain from assuming or accusing others of experiencing illness because of sickness. I think this is such an important point. I want to say it again. We should never be quick to dismiss the physical effects of our own disobedience, but we should always refrain from assuming or accusing others of experiencing illness because of sin. But I think for the most part, that's not most of our problems. I think most of us actually never connect the physical afflictions we experience with disobedience. I don't think we often make the connection between sin and sickness. But James says they can be connected in our lives as well. But it's this connection between the physical and the spiritual that God has a remedy for too. It's why James instructs the sick to call upon the elders of the church for prayer and anointing with oil. So who are these church elders and why are they anointing us with oil? The church elders that he refers to are spiritually mature people who have a responsibility for the oversight of a local congregation, very similar to our very own Calvary Church elders. 
So it is appropriate that those who are charged with the care of the community should be called to intercede for those who are seriously ill. And so this is a part of the elder's job description, to pray for the sick and to anoint them with oil. But some people might wonder, what's the significance of the oil? Well, anointing oil was used throughout, uh, among God's people throughout the Old and the New Testament to set individuals apart. And so people were anointed with oil when they were performing priestly duties or when Samuel poured oil on Saul, it was in order to set him apart to be Israel's next king. So when the elders anoint the sick with oil as they pray, it symbolizes that that person is being set apart for God's special care and attention. So it's a very simple yet profound and effective sign of God's longing to heal people. We're setting them apart for God's special care and attention. So this sign is similar to communion that we take every month. You know, we we talk about how they are signs of what Jesus has done for us. There is nothing in the bread or in the cup that saves us. It's Jesus who saves us. The bread and the wine are symbols, but they are powerful symbols. And in the same way, there is nothing special in the oil or in the elder that heals the sick, though the elders are special, okay? I don't want any elders being offended. But the oil is a powerful sign. The elder, a faithful minister. But the power for healing is in the one that we are praying to. We anoint and pray because we believe God is the source of all healing. And as James says, we do this in the name of the Lord. And so God has a remedy for our sickness. And his remedy is, go to your doctor, take your medication, but also confess your sins and pray. It's not one or the other. All healing comes from God. He is the great physician. He is the good giver of gifts who gave us doctors and surgeons and medical discoveries, and we thank God for that. It is his sovereignty and power that heals us, and he can choose to do it however he likes. And we believe that God heals, don't we? Yeah. We believe that he can still heal us today. We believe that He can heal us of our cancers and our addictions. He can heal us of our anger and even our disappointments, the things that we've been sick with for years. And I think on some level, we all do. We we will confess. We believe. But I will be the first one to say, I wrestle with doubts, and I don't think I'm alone. And one of the reasons that I don't think I'm alone is that In the time that I've been here, there have only been a very few times where the elders at Calvary have been asked to anoint the sick and to pray for their healing. And either we are an abnormally healthy congregation or there are some roadblocks that are preventing us from following James' instructions. But if we truly believe this word is true and that it's also good news, then why haven't we done more of this? Why aren't elders being called more often to anoint? Why isn't there more confession where James says, if you confess, you may be healed? I think part of the reason is that these things are so uncomfortable for most of us. 
and asking others for help or confessing our sins, it's so vulnerable, it's messy, and we don't want to bother other people or cause them to change their opinions of us. Or perhaps we also don't want to get our hopes up again, only to have them dashed and this time to suffer disappointment with God for more unanswered prayer. But James says, this is the remedy God has for us. Maybe it's not the one that we want. You know, we want our healing without imposition. We want our forgiveness without exposure. But if we truly believe God's word and trust his plans are good for us, then we need to do more than just believe theologically. We also need to believe functionally. Whereas James says in verse 22 of chapter 1, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So a couple of months ago, friends of ours in this church, Bruce and Jillian, who gave me permission to share this story this morning, came up to me after the service, and we were talking about this, coming to the elders for prayer and anointing with oil. If you don't know, Bruce has Parkinson's, and he was suffering from some major pain a few months back and was being prescribed some medication that was having uh, side effects that he didn't like. And uh, the three of us, as we were talking about this, we all shared that we, each of us had a healthy dose of skepticism. But then Bruce said, well, we believe God's word, so we better put our money where our mouth is. And if you know Bruce, he can just like sometimes just nail it. And so we organized a time where they came to one of our elders' meetings. And we prayed for Bruce and Jillian. And we anointed him with oil. And they went home encouraged. And nothing miraculous happened that night. However, over the following weeks, Bruce's pain went down significantly. And so he was able to no longer take those same pain medications. And so if you want to talk more to Bruce and Jillian about that, they'd be happy to share with you about that experience. And I've seen these things happen before. You know, I'm not suggesting that if we call the elders for prayer and confess our sins to one another, that we will be guaranteed to be healed of our sicknesses right? Scripture never makes that claim, and you won't hear me making that one either. But it instructs us to do these things and to trust God, because these are the ways that he sometimes heals. And if we believe God and his word, then like Bruce, we, we need to put our money where our mouth is. John Wimber, who started the Vineyard Movement, was once quoted as saying, when we prayed for no one, no one was healed. Now we pray for lots of people, and not everyone's healed, but some are. And if you and I, if we're praying for one another, and we're doing it with sensitivity and love and compassion, and we're not over-promising, then even if people come to us for prayer and they're not healed, then there's a good chance that they will leave feeling blessed and cared for. And I believe that that's good medicine too. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're in the middle of some sort of trouble yourself. Maybe it's your own health concerns or, the, or your health concerns of a loved one. And it doesn't seem like God is listening or if he is, he isn't doing much to remedy things. I want you to know that we do not 
dismiss your pain or your disappointment with God. I'm sorry that you're experiencing that. I think it's important that we recognize our disappointments too and not just brush them aside. Often as Christians, we're embarrassed by our disappointments with God and and what he has or has not done in our lives. But our disappointments with God is something that we need healing from as well. And you know, there was somebody else who cried out to God in the face of trouble, and he did not get the remedy that he was hoping for from God either. Jesus, God's only son, he prayed to his father that he would be spared from having to endure torture, crucifixion, and death. Jesus trusted God, but yet his heart was also heavy with disappointment with what he would have to endure. And though God loved his son, he didn't take those trials away from him, but God did provide a remedy for Jesus far better than avoiding crucifixion. He gave him resurrection. And because of that remedy, not only did Jesus conquer sin and death for himself, but he gave us the same remedy for our sins and sickness and afflictions too. Through Christ's resurrection, you and I no longer have to fear death or sickness or the troubles we face either because we also have the prospect of eternal life and resurrection with him. Resurrection may not be the remedy we asked for or the one we anticipated for our troubles, but I say thanks be to God because it's far greater than any remedy I could think of. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Because we have hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. You see, God's remedy for our disappointment and grief is eternal hope. It's resurrection life in his kingdom. Because Jesus died and rose again, we have hope that one day we will no longer suffer from sin or sickness or any other kind of trouble. And when Jesus returns, he will restore all of our broken relationships and heal this creation. And when we put our trust in him, all of our difficulties, disappointments, and even death, they no longer get the last word. Resurrection's the last word. God's got a remedy for all of these things. And so we pray. So let me ask us this morning, as James asked us as we read the text, are any of you troubled? Is anybody happy? Are any of us here sick? Let's call on our Father in heaven. If you would like to have the elders of our church or the pastors as well, to come and to pray over you and to anoint you with oil, you can set up a time with us and we can schedule a time, either talk to one of us or email us, and we'll be happy to plan a time to do that with you. But if you would like to do that today, then I've asked our elders if after the service is done, if they would come and they would sit at the front and they are prepared to pray with you, to pray about 
anything, not just sickness. And so you can come and receive prayer, or you can ask them to come to where you're sitting in the pews and receive prayer and anointing with oil as a sign that we are asking God to set you apart for his special care and attention. But I would also like to practice something together that James tells us to do with the first two things in his passage. I would like us to pray for our troubles and joys right now. It's Thanksgiving, so it seems appropriate that we spend some time thanking for our Father for what we're grateful for, but also asking him for help. And so you can do this quietly just between you and God, but I'm also going to ask that some of us who feel comfortable with it pray aloud, simply if it's praying for something we're grateful for, saying, Father, thank you for, and then we name what we're grateful for. Or if you want, if you have a need, you can just simply pray out loud, God, help me with, and then pray what you need help with. It can be uncomfortable when we do things like this, but I also think this is important sometimes for the rest of the church family to pray alongside of you. And then I'm going to close us uh, in our time of prayer together, and then Danielle and the worship team, you guys can come up and lead us in worship. So let's pray. And if you feel so led, pray, God, thank you, or God, help me with. Yeah, Lord, we are so grateful for these things and for all the silent prayers and for so much more. And we want to give you praise and thanks, but we also want to ask you for your help in our lives, for all the different struggles and troubles that we experience and those of those who and the troubles of those we love. And we ask you that you would intervene and that you would give us, um, equip us to intervene where we can so that we can be uh, your hands and feet. We pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And uh, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>